All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are on episode 42. Episode 42. We are reading Citizens, Cops, and Power, Recognizing the Limits of Community by Steve Herbert. We are on the bottom of page 69, chapter 3. Let's begin. Separate. This push towards subservience, however, faces resistance from those who fear the potential misdirections of an overly responsive state agency. Might a communal group be swayed by an unrepresentative and particularly passionate minority? Might it be motivated by its opposition to some other communal group that is perhaps not as well organized? If so, does a subservient state become inadvertently an unjust one by favoring one group's interests at the expense of another's? Might a minority group be unfairly disadvantaged in the process? These concerns about the passions and partialities of communal political activity reinforce the liberal emphasis on a politically neutral state whose sway over civil society must face limits. These limits are made real through the creation and protection of various civil and political rights. These rights should prevent the state's intrusion into such matters as expression, assembly, and worship. A state thereby guarantees individuals and groups the chance to coalesce as they please to pursue a range of political projects to construct freely the, quote, good life, end quote, they cherish. For liberals, individuals need autonomy to pursue their visions of the good. The state should thus be minimalist and neutral. Minimalist because it should rarely restrict one's freedom, Neutral, because it should not promote its own version of the good to the possible exclusion of others. In important ways, then, the state needs to be separate from communal groups, constantly wary of how the pursuit of a period of parochial, excuse me, sorry about that. In important ways, then, the state needs to be separate from communal groups, constantly wary of how the pursuit of a parochial community agenda might lead to the usurpation of the legitimate rights of others. This liberal protection of rights is not, of course, necessarily in conflict with the quest for democracy. Quite the opposite. Civil liberties are often legitimated precisely because they provide the political space in which groups in civil society can construct and debate alternatives for state policy. Without such protections, the political agency of the citizenry cannot be realized. However, there are critical moments where these two approaches to legitimating the state may well come into conflict. What to do when communities protest the construction of halfway houses for convicted sex offenders who are due to be released from prison? Should the state respond to the wishes of such communities or protect the legally defined rights of ex-offenders? How to deal with the issue of jury nullification? Should juries strictly follow the letter of the law or should they be empowered to actually nullify the law in question? Political liberalism often emphasizes the procedures through which political discussion should ensue. The goal is to ensure that the public discussion is fair, orderly, and protective of a plurality of groups. Thus, John Rawls exalts, quote, public reason, end quote, as the mechanism for adjudicating political conflict. The goal is to try to remove the The goal is to try to remove from public discussion as many metaphysical and moral questions as possible to narrow the debate to those issues around which agreement is possible. As Jeffrey Isaac, Matthew Filner, and Jason Bivens summarize it, public reason is... Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. No donuts, but there's muffins. Oh, that works. Cookies and muffins. That works. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We appreciate it. Bring you something warm to drink. What do you guys like to drink? Uh, coffee work. Coffee works. Mm-hmm. Coffee or hot chocolate. Both of those work. Sort of got like a large thermos. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll chop it up. 
someday, then yeah. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Yeah. Keep you guys warm. Yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. Not going to yeah. turn down nothing to keep us warm. Thank yeah. you. Take care of yourself. Thank you. We will. We will. Okay. Have a good day. Yeah. All right, we had a community member come and drop some uh, some uh, cookies and some muffins off. Very thankful. Uh, let's see, where were we at? Okay. Political liberalism often emphasizes the procedures through which political discussions should ensue. The goal is to ensure that public discussion is fair, orderly, and protective of a plurality of groups. Thus, John Rawls exalts, quote, public reason, end quote, as the mechanism for adjudicating political conflict. The goal is to try to remove from public discussion as many metaphysical and moral questions as possible to narrow the debate to those issues around which agreement is possible. As Jeffrey Isaac, Matthew Filner, and Jason Bivens summarize it, quote, public reason is typically abstract and juridical. It is, dispa- it is dispassionate and, quote, rational, that is, oriented toward the uncoerced agreement of deliberative interlocutors. It is expressed in a way that is accessible to others in spite of their particular identities. This should minimize the divisiveness of a plural society. But whatever calm is produced in the process comes at the price of a more open discussion. In this way, the state is to be shielded from the responsibility of adjudicating claims that originate in such moral discourses as religion. It is to be responsive to only those policy advocates that can articulate a case with an abstract logic embraceable by all. Constructed like this, liberalism restricts the extent of democratic debate and renders some citizen demands as beyond the political pale. The extent of state responsiveness is relevant to considerations of the police community connection. Many community-based groups that focus on issues of crime and disorder often do so in response to a particular threat, often embodied in a particular group. What to do when teenagers are gathering in public space and engaging in valuable behavior that causes fear among some residents? What if there are suspicions what if there are suspicions amongst residents that some in that group are engaged in the sale of drugs or the traffic of guns? How far should the police go in responding to these concerns? How do the police balance the various rights of the teenagers, the right to assembly, the right against intrusive searches and seizures, against their need to show that they take citizens' complaints seriously? Does a police force that takes civil liberties seriously threaten its own legitimacy? The drive to understand the police as importantly separate from society derives legitimacy not only from the need to protect civil liberties, but also from the police themselves and their quest for professionalism. This is the second and distinct this is the second and distinct means by which separation can be legitimated. Indeed, the professional movement was initiated to increase the distance between the police and the communities they patrolled. In the machine era of urban politics, officers were seen as too enmeshed in their neighborhoods and thereby too easily corrupted. Professionalism was meant to make police more aloof, more controlled by legal and bureaucratic rules. Officers would thus be less corruptible. They would also be more efficient and effective in reducing crime. This legacy of professionalism and the separation from the community that it implies lives on an in-police culture, lives on in-police culture. Like other professions, the police seek to preserve a unique base of competence. From this base, they can resist community oversight. The potential tension between subservience and separation derives then from both normative conflict and sociological practice. They can conflict as political ideals. They can conflict because of police adherence to ideals of professionalism. 
This is an intractable issue because each ideal of democratic decision-making, of a neutral state that protects individual rights, of state actors who uphold professional norms, possess considerable legitimacy. On those occasions when they do conflict, there is no ready calculus towards an ideal resolution. What complicates matters further is that there is yet a third way in which the state-society relation can be understood and legitimated. Okay, so we took a little took a little pause after finishing up that passage. I think the things that stands out to me the most from that passage are the differences they pointed out between separate and subservient when it comes to community policing. And the first difference that was pointed out is that in that concept or the philosophy of separate community policing that the police don't necessarily work together with the community or take or take their lead from the community or they are not looking to uh, see which things that the community is in need of when they are implementing their policy or implementing their procedures. Uh, One of the dangers they pointed out in the subservient community policing is that one group within the community may be able to marginalize another group or subjugate another group within the community because they have more power because they have a louder voice and the idea of of policing being separate from from the community as opposed to policing being subservient to the community puts it in a position in which the police aren't taking their uh, cues from the co- people in the community or they aren't implementing their policies and procedures based off what people in the community feel would be best and also that the community is not at the at the head of governing itself uh, I don't know if it's still at the head of governing itself it's just the police are not taking their their instructions from the community uh, and, and instructions is probably not the the right terminology to use there but I think I'm getting a point across. I think one of the other things that is that they brought up was uh, this liberal protection of rights is not, of course, necessarily in conflict with the quest for democracy. Uh, Okay, wait a minute. One more fault. My fault. That's the wrong sentence. That's the wrong sentence. I was looking for. Okay, here. What to do when communities protest the construction of halfway houses for convicted sex offenders who are due to be released from prison? Should the state respond to the wishes of such communities or protect the legally defined rights of ex-defenders? Ex-offenders, how to deal with the issue of jury nullification? Should juries strictly follow the letter of the law or should they be empowered to actually nullify the law in question? Uh, And I think that those are those are issues that have to be grappled with. I think that that's one of the things that happens a lot with, with the concept of policing is that people have a a fear of being victimized and that fear of being victimized usually manifests in dehumanizing people who they think may be victimizers and in a, in a in a hope to not be victimized and i think that that is a very reasonable feeling a reasonable uh, thoughts to have but i think that what we have to do is to begin to combat the uh, the inhumaneness in which some of those uh, things manifest themselves in. And so uh, I think that that was one of the things that was uh, also uh, important there. What's up, my man? Uh, yeah, you can uh, get one of those uh, trays that's in there. Yeah, you can grab one of the uh, things that's in there. Uh, 
Okay, so let's move on to the, the next portion, uh, generative. Page 72. Rather than viewing the state as either subservient to or separate from society, one can also justifiably see it as fundamentally generative of society. In both democratic and liberal theory, there is an important sense in which state and society are distinct and need to remain so. But perhaps this helps us miss how the state is a basic creator of community. There are three ways in which this could be said to be true. First, one could emphasize the extent to which state policy undergirds the conditions in which communities develop. Zoning policy, for example, critically shapes the class composition of a neighborhood and thus helps construct a landscape of differentiated political capability. The provision of other local services, such as education, health care, and child care, also shape the well-being and political capacity of a community. The formal social control apparatus is another contributing factor in a neighborhood's dynamic. One of the more potent critiques of the massive growth and incarceration in the United States is its impact on the male population of distressed neighborhoods. The absence of income earners and heads of families arguably increases those levels of distress. In short, state policy structures urban dynamics significantly. The state helps generate the community that develops within a city's neighborhood. A second sense in which the state could be understood as generative of community emerges from discussions of governmentality. Working from an initial formulation by Foucault, analysts of governmentality emphasize the means by which governance projects are constructed, rationalized, and implemented, particularly in liberal societies where the political subject is presumed to be free. Projects of governmentality are thus, as Mitchell Dean puts it, quote, distinguished by trying to work through the freedom or capacities of the governed, end quote. Analysis of governmentality plays principal emphasis upon the rationalities of government, the expert knowledges upon which governmental programs draw and the implicit definitions of truth contained therein. The assumptions these knowledges make about the present and desired future state of the governed. The assumptions and the implicit definitions of truth contained therein. The assumptions these knowledges make about the present and desired future state of the governed, the latent capacities within the governed that can be tapped in productive ways. Here our attention is drawn to how state agencies apprehend community. State actors employ certain grids of legibility upon the input they receive from the citizenry. They recognize some and not Sorry about that. They recognize some and not other forms of input as legitimate. They sort that input into categories. They react to it via certain prescribed routines. James Scott provocatively refers to this broad phenomenon as, quote, seeing like a state, end quote. Community is thus not some independently existing entity, but is rendered sensible through a particular state epistemology. The police are no different in this regard. As we will see, they construct community in particular ways that fundamentally impact the manner in which they respond to citizen concerns and demands. There is yet a third way in which the state generates community. State efforts to improve legitimacy often involve trumpeting abstract ideals which state policy reinforces. These ideals are typically transcendent and moralized. Freedom, equality, justice, and opportunity are all obvious examples. Counterexamples are often mobilized as the target of state energies. Terrorism isn't evil because it restricts freedom. Racial bias odious because it frustrates equal opportunity. In moralistically 
constructing state policy and its motivations, state actors create a more universal terrain that seeks to unite citizens into an overarching community. Various efforts to promote patriotism exemplifies this. They work to create, in Anderson's words, and quote, imagine community, end quote, in whose name such dramatic action as war making can be legitimated. Crime is one phenomenon often constructed in high, more highly moralist, moralistic terms, in part to legitimate a robust formal social control apparatus. As a moral plague, as an impediment to people's freedoms to possess property and to move safely through space, crime demands a strong state response. Certainly, the police understand their work in moralistic terms as integral to a pitched struggle between the opposing forces of communal good and criminal evil. By constructing this moral terrain, state actors like the police help to generate community. They seek to unite people around a common and transcendent vision of crime's genesis and suppression. Once placed upon this moral terrain, the citizenry are not primarily political subjects with rights and democratic potential, but instead potential victims who must be protected. These moralistic discourses work to limit the range of citizen discourses police officers consider legitimate. They are a set of ideological blinders with considerable consequences. In each of these three ways, as creators of highly consequential state policy, as architects of an epistemology that defines legitimate forms of communal input, as protectors of transcendent goods, state actors generate community. These realities further complicate how best to understand, both normatively and sociologically, the relationship between state agencies like the police and the communities with whom they are meant to partner. The tension between subservience, separation, and generativity necessarily infuses the politics of community policing in ways that are not easily resolved. And then that brings us to the end of that passage. And I think I'm going to, what I'm going to do is end this episode on this passage, even though it'll, will be, this will be a shorter episode. One of the things I'm trying to do is keep some of the themes in the chapters together that sort of didn't work with this chapter because I read the subservient passage on the previous episode and then read the other two forms of, or the other two types of police relationships with communities generative and separate in this episode but hopefully people can remember some of the things from the subservient passage that was read i think the main thing that i got once we got to the very end of these these three forms of relationships is that depending on the power your community has will decide upon which one of these relationships you have with the police. And I think that the generative relationship is one that is primarily had by communities of low income and working class communities and, and communities of color historically. And I think that that is something that we have to keep in mind that the state the state has generated communities in certain areas. I think that when you understand what de facto, when you understand de facto segregation and de jure segregation and redlining and gerrymandering and when you understand those, those things specifically for a certain point in time and Jim Crow, when you understand those things specifically for a certain point in time, you realize that it, there was for majority of the time that this country has existed, the government has decided which 
groups of people will be able to engage in which activities they have decided, been able to decide and control which groups of people will be able to live in which neighborhoods, which groups of people will be able to receive which kind of education, which groups of people will be able to receive uh, what kind of health care. And again, these things, if you are if you live in a community that does not have the type of power to make the policing subservient to you, you can't have that relationship. If you don't have a community that has the type of power to ensure that the policing is separate and that it is not a, a group that can have dominance to sway how policing is done over a subjugated or marginalized group, if you don't have the power to do that in your community, then you can't have a, a separate relationship. And so you get to a place where you have a generative relationship and uh, the government is generating the type of community that you have and the police is, uh, is generating the type of community that you have. And so I think that that's the main, the, the number one thing I took away once we got to the very end and they laid out all these different types of relationships that communities have with police is that to have the first two of those relationships, you have to have some type of base of power, some type of form of power. Uh, and, uh, and a lot of times that that power is coincides with finance and, and class status. And so most communities of color don't have the luxury of being able to have a, a separate or subservient relationship with the police. And I think that brings us back to one of the things that was in the previous chapters Let's see if I can find it real quick before we end this episode. When it talked about when we were in chapter two, I believe. Yeah, chapter two, when they were talking about the political status of community. Maybe it's chapter one, but it was another one of the it was another chapter where they were laying out the different forms of community, the different types of community. And one of the things that was pointed out again there is that certain communities that don't have power cannot cannot uh, be able to have some of these other types of communities that were being offered. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually end this, I'm going to end this passage here and I'm going to find out the, the what I, uh, I'm going to find the passage that I was speaking of uh, where they pointed out this and then that'll be how we end the episode. So I'm going I'm to find that out, come back and relay that over to you and then we'll end this episode and we'll begin on uh, the next, next episode. All right.